Chapter Twenty Four of Olive. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Olive by Dinah Maria Craik. Chapter Twenty Four. The subject of Harold Gwynne served Olive and her mother for a full half hour's conversation during that idle twilight season which they always devoted to pleasant talk. It was a curious coincidence which thus revived in their memories a name now almost forgotten. For, the debt once paid, Mr. Gwynne and all things connected with him had passed into complete oblivion, save that Olive carefully kept his letters. These she had the curiosity to take from their hiding-place and examine once more, partly for her mother's amusement, partly for her own, for it was a whim of hers to judge of character by handwriting, and she really had been quite interested in the character which both Miss Vanbrugh and her brother had drawn. How strange that he should have been so near us and we not know the fact! He seems quite to haunt us, to be our evil genius, our Damon. Hush, my dear, it is wrong to talk so. Remember, too, that he is Sarah's husband. Olive did remember it. Jestingly, though she spoke, there was in her a remembrance, as mournful as a thing so long ended could be, of that early friendship, whose falseness had been her loving heart's first blight. She had never formed another. There was a unity in her nature which made it impossible to build the shrine of a second affection on the ruins of the first. She found it so even in life's ordinary ties. What would it have been with her had she ever known the great mystery of love? She never had known it. She had lived all these years with a heart as virgin as mountain snows. When the one sweet dream which comes to most in early maidenhood, the dream of loving and being loved, was crushed, her heart drew back within itself, and, after a time of suffering almost as deep as if for the loss of a real object instead of a mere ideal, she prepared herself for her destiny. She went out into society, and there saw men as they are in society, feeble fluttering coxcombs, hard groveling men of business, some few men of pleasure or of vice, and floating around all the race of ordinary mankind, neither good nor bad. Out of these classes, the first she merely laughed at, the second she turned from with distaste, the third she abhorred and despised, the fourth she looked upon with a calm indifference. Some good and clever men she had met occasionally, towards whom she had felt herself drawn with a friendly inclination, but they had always been drifted from her by the ever-shifting currents of society. And these, the exceptions, were chiefly old, or at least elderly persons, men of long-acknowledged talent, wise and respected heads of families. The new generation, the young men out of whose community her female acquaintances were continually choosing lovers and husbands, were much disliked by Olive Rothsay. Gradually, when she saw how mean was the general standard of perfection, how ineffably beneath her own ideal, the man she could have worshipped, she grew quite happy in her own certain lot. She saw her companions wedded to men who from herself would never have won a single thought. So she put aside forever the half-sad dream of her youth, and married herself unto her art. She indulged in some of her sage reflections on men and women, courtship and wedlock in general, when she sat at her mother's feet, talking of Harold Gwynne and of his wife. "'It could not have been a happy marriage, Mamma, if Mr. Gwynne be really the man that Miss Vanbrugh and her brother describe.' and all day there recurred to Olive's fancy the words, A wife who loved her husband. She, at least, knew too well that Sarah Derwent, when she married, could not have loved hers. 
Wonderings as to what was Sarah's present fate occupied her mind for a long, long time. She had full opportunity for thought, as her mother, oppressed by the sultry August evening, had fallen asleep with her hand on her daughter's neck, and Olive could not stir for fear of waking her. Slowly she watched the twilight darken into a deeper shadow, that of a gathering thunderstorm. The trees beyond the garden began to sway restlessly about, and then, with a sudden flash and distant thunder-growl, down came the rain in torrents. Mrs. Rothsay started and woke. Like most timid women she had a great dread of thunder, and it took all Olive's powers of soothing to quiet her nervous alarms. These were increased by another sound that broke through the pouring rain, a violent ringing of the garden bell, which, in Mrs. Rothsay's excited state, seemed a warning of all sorts of horrors. "'The house is on fire! The bolt has struck it! Oh, Olive, Olive, save me!' she cried. "'Hush, darling, you are quite safe with me.' And Olive rose up, folding her arms closely round her mother, who hid her head in her daughter's bosom. They stood, Mrs. Rothsay trembling and cowering, Olive with her pale brow lifted fearlessly, as though she would face all terror, all danger for her mother's sake. Thus they showed, in the faint glimmer of the lightning, a beautiful picture of filial love, to the eyes of a stranger who that moment opened the door. She was a woman, whom the storm had apparently driven in for shelter. "'Is this Miss Vanbrugh's house? Is there any one here?' she asked, her accent being slightly foreign. Olive invited her to enter. "'Thank you. Forgive my intrusion, but I am frightened, half drowned. The thunder is awful. Will you take me in till Miss Vanbrugh returns?' A light was quickly procured, and Olive came to divest the stranger of her dripping garments. "'Thank you, no. I can assist myself. I always do.' And she tried to unfasten her shawl, a rich, heavy fabric and of gaudy colours, when her trembling fingers failed. She knitted her brows and muttered some sharp exclamation in French. "'You had better let me help you,' said Olive, gently, as with a firm hand she took hold of the shivering woman, or girl, for she did not look above seventeen, drew her to a seat, and there disrobed her of her drenched shawl. Not until then did Miss Rothsay pause to consider further about this incognita, arrived in such a singular manner. But when, recovered from her alarm, the young stranger subsided into the very unromantic occupation of drying her wet frock by the kitchen fire, Olive regarded her with no small curiosity. She stood, a picture less of girlish grace than of such grace as French fashion dictates. Her tall, well-rounded form struggled through a painful compression into slimness. Her whole attire had that peculiar tournure which we islanders term Frenchified. Nay, there was something in the very tie of her neck-ribbon which showed it never could have been done by English fingers. She appeared, all over, a young lady from abroad. We have noticed her dress first, because that was most noticeable. She herself was a fine, tall, well-modelled girl, who would have been graceful had fashion allowed her. She had one beauty, a column-like neck and well-set head, which she carried very loftily. Her features were somewhat large, not pretty, and yet not plain. She had a good mouth and chin, her eyes were very dark and silken-fringed, but her hair was fair. This peculiarity caught Olive's eye at once so much so that she almost fancied she had seen the face before, she could not tell where. She puzzled about the matter, until the young guest, who seemed to make herself quite at home, had dried her garments, and voluntarily proposed that they should return to the drawing-room. 
They did so, the stranger leading the way, and, much to Olive's surprise, seeming to thread with perfect ease the queer labyrinths of the house. By this time the storm was over, and they found Mrs. Rothsay sitting quietly waiting for tea. The young lady again apologized in her easy foreign manner, and asked if she might stay with them until Miss Vanbrugh's return. Of course her hostess assented, and she talked for above an hour, chiefly of Paris which she said she had just left, of French customs, music, and literature. In the midst of this Miss Vanbrugh's voice was heard in the hall. The girl started, as one does at the sound of some old tune, heard in youth and forgotten for years. Her gaiety ceased. She put her hand before her eyes, but when the door opened she was her old self again. No child, frayed with a sprite, could have looked more alarmed than Miss Meliora at the sudden vision of this elegant young damsel who advanced towards her. The little old maid was quite overpowered with her stylish bend, her salute, French fashion, cheek to cheek, and her anxious inquiries after Miss Vanbrugh's health. "'I am quite well, thank you, madam. A friend of Mrs. Rothsay's, I suppose,' was poor Meliora's bewildered reply. "'No, indeed. I have not till now had the pleasure of hearing Mrs. Rothsay's name. My visit was to yourself,' said the stranger, evidently enjoying the incognito she had kept, for her black eyes sparkled with fun. "'I am happy to see you, madam,' again stammered the troubled Meliora. "'I thought you would be. I came to surprise you. My dear Miss Vanbrugh, have you really forgotten me? Then allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Crystal Manners.' Miss Meliora looked as if she could have sunk into the earth. Year after year, from the sum left in the bank, she had paid the school bill of her self-assumed charge, but that was all. Afterthoughts, and a few prudish hints given by good-natured friends, had made her feel both ashamed and frightened at having taken such a doubtful protégé. Whenever she chanced to think of Crystal's growing up, and coming back a woman, she drove the subject from her mind in absolute alarm. Now the very thing she dreaded had come upon her. Here was the desolate child returned, a stylish young woman, with no home in the world but that of her sole friend and protectress. Poor Miss Vanbrugh was quite overwhelmed. She sank on a chair. "'Dear me, I am so frightened, that is, so startled. Oh, Miss Rothsay, what shall I do?' And she looked appealingly to Olive. But between her and Miss Rothsay glided the young stranger. The bright color paled from Crystal's face, her smile passed into a frown. "'Then you are not glad to see me. You, the sole friend I have in the world, whom I have travelled a thousand miles to meet.' travelled alone and unprotected. You are not glad to see me. I will turn and go back again. I will leave the house. I will—I—' Her rapid speech ended in a burst of tears. Poor Meliora felt like a guilty thing. "'Miss Manners! Crystal, my poor child! I didn't mean that. Don't cry. Don't cry. I am very glad to see you. So are we all. Are we not, Olive?' Olive was almost as much puzzled as herself. She had a passing recollection of the death of Mrs. Manners, and of the child's being sent to school, but since then she had heard no more of her. She could hardly believe that the elegant creature before her was the little ragged imp of a child whom she had once seen staring idly down the river. However, she asked no questions, but helped to soothe the girl, and to restore, as far as possible, peace and composure to the household. They all spent the evening together without any reference to the past. Only once Crystal, in relating how, as soon as ever her term of education expired, she had almost compelled her governess to let her come to England, and to Miss Vanbrugh, said in her proud way, 
It was not to ask a maintenance, for you know my parents left me independent, but I wanted to see you because I believed that, besides taking charge of my fortune, you had been kind to me when a child. How or in what way I cannot clearly remember, for I think, she added, laughing, that I must have been a very stupid little girl. All seems so dim to me until I went to school. Can you enlighten me, Miss Vanbrugh? Another time, another time, my dear, said the painter's sister, growing very much confused. Well, I thank you all the same, and you shall not find me ungrateful, said the young lady, kissing Miss Meliora's hand and speaking in a tone of real feeling which would have moved any woman. It quite overpowered Miss Vanbrugh, the softest-hearted little woman in the world. She embraced her protégé, declaring that she would never part with her. But, she added, with a sudden thought, a thought of intense alarm, what will Michael say? Do not think of that to-night, interposed Olive. Miss Manners is tired. Let us get her to bed quickly, and we will see what morning brings. The advice was followed, and Crystal disappeared. Not, however, without lavishing on Mrs. and Miss Rothsay a thousand gracious thanks and apologies, with an air and deportment that did infinite honour to the polite instruction of her pension. Mrs. Rothsay, confused with all that had happened, did not ask many questions, but only said as she retired, "'I don't quite like her, Olive. I don't like the tone of her voice. And yet there was something that struck me in the touch of her hand, which is so different in different people. Hers is a very pretty hand, Mamma. It is quite classic in shape, like poor Papa's, which I remember so well. There never was such a beautiful hand as your Papa's. He said it descended in the Rothsay family.' "'You have it, you know, my child,' observed Mrs. Rothsay. She sighed, but softly. For, after all these years, the widow and the fatherless had learned to speak of their loss without pain, though with tender remembrance. Thinking of him and of her mother, Olive thought, likewise, how much happier was her own lot than that of the orphan girl, who, by her own confession, had never known what it was to remember the love of the dead or to rejoice in the love of the living and her heart was moved with the pity, nay, even tenderness for crystal manners. When she had assisted her mother to bed, as she always did, Olive, in passing downstairs, moved by some feeling of interest, listened at the door of the young stranger. She was apparently walking up and down her room with a quick hurried step. Olive knocked. "'Are you quite comfortable? Do you want anything?' "'Who's there? Oh, come in, Miss Rothsay.' Olive entered and found, to her surprise, that the candle was extinguished. "'I thought I heard you moving about, Miss Manners.' "'So I was. I felt restless and could not sleep. I am very tired with my journey, I suppose, and the room is strange to me. Come here. Give me your hand.' "'You are not afraid, my dear child,' said Olive, remembering that she was, indeed, little more than a child, though she looked so womanly. You are not frightening yourself in this gloomy old house, nor thinking of ghosts and goblins. No, no, I was thinking, if I must tell the truth, said the girl, with something very like a suppressed sob. I was thinking of you and your mother, as I saw you standing when I first came in. No one ever clasped me so, or ever will. Not that I have anyone to blame. My father and mother died, they could not help dying. But if they had just brought me into the world and left me, as I have heard some parents have done, then I should cry out, Wicked parents! If I grow up heartless, because I have no one to love me, and vile because I have none to guide me, my sin be upon your head." She said these words with vehement passion. But Olive answered calmly, "'Hush, Crystal. Let me call you Crystal, for I am much older than you. Lie down and rest. 
Be loving and you will never want for love. Be humble and you will never want for guiding. You have good friends here who will care for you very much, I doubt not. Be content, my poor, tired child. She spoke very softly, for the darkness quite obliterated the vision of that stylish damsel who had exhibited her airs and graces in the drawing-room. As she sat by Crystal's bedside, Olive only felt the presence of a desolate orphan. She said in her heart, "'Please, God, I will do her all the good that lies in my feeble power. Who knows but that in some way or other I may comfort and help this child?' So she stooped down and kissed Crystal on the forehead, a tenderness that the girl passionately returned. Then Olive went and lay down by her blind mother's side, with a quiet and a happy heart. End of chapter 24